This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter. Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them, yell at them. 
Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagools. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know. And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or... I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories, and now we bring you the story of Game to Grow, a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons and Dragons as a tool in therapy. Here to explain what they do are Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Um, as we talk to, to people kind of around the country, and especially people who are not not in the gaming or um, or kind of geek um, atmosphere or culture, oftentimes they assume Dungeons and Dragons is a video game. So here's here's how I usually describe it. Um, there's one person who acts as the sort of head storyteller and referee of the game. And they know most of the rules and they can explain most of the rules to the game. And that person's usually referred to as the dungeon master or the game master. And they sit at the head of the table and they describe stuff that's happening in the world. And then everybody else who's sitting at the table um, is uh, just playing a character in that world, a single character. And they have a piece of paper that tells them things like how strong their character is or what kind of equipment they have or what kinds of abilities they have. And this all takes place in a fantasy world, much like Lord of the Rings, where there are swords and bow and arrow and uh, full suits of armor and, of course, magical spells. And the dungeon master might describe something like, all of you have uh, decided to venture into this dark cave where you can see that there are there's mildew growing on the walls, there's mold, um, and there is a um, dripping coming from the stalactites in the ceiling. You're here because you've heard of a tremendous treasure um, that apparently was lost in these caves a long time ago, and you've decided you're going to go after that treasure. Maybe even you have a map to help guide you through. And as you travel further down into the cave, it's very dark, um, but you can see that the walls have been carved out like somebody has carved them with man-made tools. And you travel deeper and deeper into this cave system until finally you open up into a, a large room. And in this large room, you can see um, across the way is a door on the other side of a very large gap. Um, and the gap seems to stretch very far down into the ground. But the thing that really catches your eye is that hanging above the gap, uh, clinging for dear life, appears to be a small gnome man. And he's uh, hanging from a rope. And he sees you as you walk in and he uh, shouts to you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy somebody finally showed up. Please help me. And at this point in time, uh, the dungeon master then says, what do you do? And all of the players at the table get to decide what their character does to sort of overcome this this challenge or this situation. So they might do all sorts of things. A uh, warrior character might um, leap across the pit and try to grab the gnome uh, to save him from, from falling down into the pit. A, um, a ranger or an archer character um, might shoot a bow with a, with a rope tied to it and tightrope walk across the, the pit and, and um, save the gnome that way. Or a wizard character who can cast magic spells might uh, use a magic spell that can pull the rope and get it swinging so the gnome might be able to jump off. And no matter what they do, they're going to do it together because all the players at the table are all working on a team together. They're not competing with each other. Instead, they are working cooperatively towards a common goal. And in this case, the common goal of the game is not the most points. It's not even to achieve a particular goal. Even in this case um, of the example I gave, you're not trying to get treasure. You're trying to tell a story. 
And that's one of the really brilliant things about um, games like Dungeons and Dragons is that the point of the game is to tell a story. And because that's really the goal of the game, because that's really the place that you're trying to get to, everybody at the table might have a different idea for what that story looks like, but they know they're all working towards that goal. Um, and that's what really turns it into a, a brilliant and amazing experience. As the dungeon master continues to describe things in the world, continues to describe whether or not the players' um, uh, attempts to to do those things are successful, um, and the players get to roll dice to help add randomness and and help determine the the outcomes of their action, and get to really have the most open-ended gaming experience you can possibly have, where they can decide and and try anything that comes to their mind in a very loose um, uh, rule system that allows you to be very flexible with the outcomes of it. A lot of game masters, to to my chagrin, um, I don't like the fact that they often see themselves as adversaries of the players. There's oftentimes an antagonistic relationship where the game master uh, sees themselves as needing to challenge and there's like a ha-ha, your characters are going to die today because my monsters are going to be stronger than them. And we don't do anything like that. Um, our goal as game masters is very much to challenge the players, but also to keep them engaged and keep them excited. So we do that by challenging them the right amount, um, building on their ideas while they build on our space, um, on, on our ideas, because we are, uh, we're co- co-creating and collaborating in this, in this game where that's oftentimes, uh, for many of our players, the first time an adult has said, what do you care about? What do you want to do? So then the players now see an adult who is playing with them, really playing with them in a way that is very healing to a lot of a lot of participants, especially ours, who are identified at school as as oftentimes being an outcast. People tell them what to do all the time, very rarely say, what do you care about? What is something that you want out of life? And so this is an opportunity where they can push boundaries and see what happens when they take up space and then have an adult be excited about the choices that they're making. We started doing what we're doing right now using Dungeons and Dragons in therapeutic social skills groups largely by accident. Adam and I both started playing Dungeons and Dragons when we were pretty young. Uh, got a lot out of it. We played games with our friends. We got to use all the, uh, all the mechanics of the games and the storytelling of the game to really get a lot of social outlet when we were kids. I, Adam Davis, was... Um, studying drama therapy because I had wanted to use the, the drama games and experiences that I had had as a performer and then as a drama teacher to help kids, um, help kids become more into themselves and learn about themselves and, and how they could interact with the world better. And so Adam and I met in grad school and I started picking up um, an after school program that was a Dungeons and Dragons program for quirky kids who needed a little, a little guidance and social support. And I took the game over and realized that Dungeons and Dragons is actually a, a perfect uh, modality for sit-down drama therapy. So we uh, started using the game a little more intentionally, and then um, just barely scratching the surface. And then when um, my facilitator at the time left to go pursue other interests, there was an opening, and I knew Adam from grad school. So we had kind of like done that thing where we uh, we we brought uh, some things from our personal lives as sort of a get-to-know-you activity in the very beginning of the quarter, and both Adam and I brought dice. 
we knew from across the room that we were both named Adam. We both liked dice and games, and so we knew we were kindred spirits. Uh, so um, we we had that great moment, that sort of nerd nod uh, <laughs> from from across the room. Um, and then uh, after the class, uh, Adam Davis came up to me and he said, "Hey, do you want to get paid to come and play improv games and Dungeons and Dragons?" And I was like, "Yeah, that sounds <laughs> that sounds like the best." Um, and at the time, the group was really just a, a sort of uh, drop-in social group. Um, and then when we came in, we started saying, there's a lot we can do with this. And we were both in a state of uh, sort of um, master's program um, desire to want to wanna use all the amazing theories and all the amazing stuff that we were learning. And we um, really had this tremendous opportunity to start diving in saying, oh my gosh, we're this, this is exactly what we can be using, all of these amazing theories, all these amazing things that we're learning, and we can apply them right here, but through the game of Dungeons & Dragons that we grew up playing. And when we return, we're going to hear more from Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Game to Grow, and it's a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons & Dragons as a tool in therapy. And my goodness, I never thought of anything like this before. But by the way, people who naysay and talk down so many of the games that young boys and girls play, I don't think see the virtues a lot of these games and a lot of the social skills that can be learned playing them, and particularly Dungeons and Dragons because of its creative space and how in the end the world was created and in the end dictated by the actors and players themselves. So when we come back, more of this story, Adam John's story, and Adam Davis's story, two pals who figured out a way to help people at risk, people in need, game to grow their story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the story of Game to Grow. And by the way, they hail from Kirkland, Washington. And as so many of our stories do, they hail from all over this great country. And some are quirky stories, some are big, bold stories about founders and Henry Ford. But these are some of our favorites. They're not big, bold stories. They're better than that. They're small, risk-taking, quirky stories. They're happening all around us every day. If you have a story like it, something somebody's doing to impact their neighborhood, their neighbor even, just that story, one person helping one person, we're as interested in that here in our American stories as Henry Ford's story or George Washington's. We treat them all the same. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. 
And now back to the story of Adam Davis and Adam Johns and how one of their childhood treasures turned into a grad school exercise and ultimately a full-time occupation in therapy. We got our first group going. The parents saw the outcomes. The parents started talking to other parents, inviting us to speak at other engagements. And then all of a sudden, the, the ball started to roll. And then before we knew it, we have continued to grow. And we are now full-time therapeutic game masters and executive directors of game to grow We have a, a sort of a, a theory at game to grow where players play the characters that they need to play. So we have a lot of players who, like I said, are socially isolated, who don't have a lot of social aptitude, and they don't really have a lot of experience being charismatic or confident, but they pick characters who are aspirational. A lot of players come in and they, they pick characters who are military leaders, who have on their character sheet that they are very charismatic, that people believe in them. And so we know right away that that's something that, the, that these young people want to, want to play with and want to explore. Um, we have players that come in choosing to play characters that are very similar to themselves, lone wolves who are very isolated in the game. And then we can help that character grow and thus the player grow. And that lone wolf character who wants to go off and solve every problem by themselves, now we put them in a situation in the game where their character needs to rely on somebody else because Dungeons & Dragons is a fellowship game. It's a game where every character has a unique and special ability that, that makes them special. And that's a great life lesson, is that you can't do everything by yourself. And people are going to rely on you, and you are going to rely on people. And here's what that looks like to ask for help. And here's how good it feels to be able to be the person who can step up and help out the team. In one particular instance uh, where a player really made a choice that I was not expecting, um, the characters had all made their way through this dungeon, and they came up into a room where there was, um, on in one corner of the room, a massive troll of legend uh, who had been imprisoned there. And in the other corner of the room was a series of three unlabeled switches. And uh, across the other side of the room was a metal door that was closed. And it quickly was explained to the players that um, one of the three unlabeled switches would open the door on the other side of the room, allowing them to progress further into their dungeon. Um, and the other two switches, when pulled together, would release the, the massive troll of legend upon the players, but also upon the world itself. And usually how this works is that it's sort of a, um, an interesting uh, challenge where the players can talk to the troll, they can figure out uh, is the troll lying to us about which switch is which, and, and it's sort of a mix of a puzzle and a social challenge. In this case, we had one player who uh, had just joined the group, and the player had described their character as being impulsive and having um, a lot of uh, hyperactivity. And it was an appropriate character for that player to play because that, that player also struggled with those exact same challenges. And that player said, um, I run across the room and I pull all three switches at once. And I've run that scenario several times. That was the first time anybody had ever just decided to pull all three switches. So all of a sudden I had to decide, okay, well, what, what's going to happen here? And what are the consequences of, of effectively just running ahead? And all the other players at the table had gotten out like graph paper and they were getting ready to like solve the puzzle. And they just stood and stared slack-jawed at their teammate who, who might have just done them all in. And what I said was the troll runs across the room and he picks up uh, the impulsive player's character 
getting ready to eat them whole. And all the other characters, I said, you're, you're, you're the players at the table. I said, you, you can leave now. The door is open. Uh, but if you leave, you'll be leaving your teammate to be eaten by this, this massive troll of legend. And you'll also be leaving the troll to, to wreak havoc upon the world. You need to decide what your characters would do here. They are heroes in this world. What would they do? And they turned and they debated it with each other and they eventually decided that they would help their teammate. And so they enticed the troll back into the, the cage um, and re-imprisoned the troll. And at the end of that session, we always do a checkout at the end of every session. And at the end of that session, there um, the players all checked out with each other and the impulsive player said, I'm really glad that you guys helped me out there because my character is really impulsive and it's clear that they're going to have to learn how to be less impulsive. And I'm hoping that your characters will help teach them that. And one of the other players at the table also said in the checkout, I'm super glad that you did that because we're all here to basically learn how to navigate this space, how to learn these skills and be better at this. And your character doing that helped make me feel like, like I really belong here. I'm, I struggle with some of the same challenges and it helped me feel like I belong. And it was an amazing moment for them to realize that they're all in a similar place and they've all struggled to make friends, to connect with people. Um, and this is a place where that doesn't matter, where they can all get along and where they can m maybe have missteps but they can feel a sense of acceptance here. Part of our mission is to get more games into more communities around the country and around the world. We have traveled and we've done presentations and trainings for therapists who want to get involved. So what we've seen is that a lot of therapists don't have a lot of experience with role-playing games. And then the big barrier to entry, they, they hear the stories, they get excited, they want to participate in this emerging uh, intervention strategy, but they've, they're under-experienced in a game like Dungeons & Dragons. So one of our missions is to create a product that they can then take and it'll help them get started much faster. This project is called Critical Core. It is a beginner box for therapeutic game masters to start helping their participants almost right out of the box. So it's got a really simplified rule set. It's got a facilitator's guide for how to facilitate the game to be a positive pro-social environment with all the improv and all the stuff that we have added on as uh, incorporating the play therapy and drama therapy that we have into our game. But then also it's got a very specific module design where the storylines are directly related to a real world areas of social growth. So we might have the room that fills up with lava and that's a way to build frustration tolerance. Or the players have to go and get past a guard and that guard might have a slightly downturned mouth that looks like a frown and then we can work on theory of mind skills and perspective taking where now we can talk about uh, nonverbal social cues and the fact that that guard being sad or upset has nothing to do with you. You have no idea why he's making that facial expression, but in order to get past the guard into the next room in the dungeon or in the castle, we have to be able to relate to him, understand him, and communicate with him. So the, those three components going into Critical Core, uh, I think, will really be how we can get this project out there. We, like Microsoft's vision of a computer on every desk, we want a game on every desk, a game in every school a game in every hospital, a game in every clinic and therapist's office. Uh, that is our mission. So we don't want people to just game more. We want people to game better. 
Don't just game. Game to grow. And what an interesting story. At first, when I was reading about it, I thought, why should I care? But as so often happens here on this show, you start to hear the story and you go, my goodness, what an interesting way to do therapy. Therapeutic game masters. And it just, well, it makes sense. And we've been telling Adam Johns and Adam Davis' story. Great job on this, Robbie. Robbie just sort of bumped into it. These guys are in Kirkland, Washington. And we love to tell stories from all over this great country. Big ones, small ones. Again, Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Game to grow. And I love what they said. Don't just game more. Game better. This is Our American Stories. In stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And we love the intersection of music and story and the story of a song. And by the way, you can go to Our American Network and hear all of our stories of a song. This one is about a Beach Boy gem called Good Vibrations. Let's hear the guitars, please, in Is it possible for a song to be simultaneously revered and underappreciated? If so, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys falls into this category. Okay, that's fine. Let's make it. Take one. Pal, let's go, man. Here we go. Play hard and strong all the way. Music critics have celebrated the song, voting it number one in Mojo's Top 100 Records of All Time and number six on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. The song has been cited as a forerunner to the Beatles' A Day in the Life in 1967, and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody in 1975. Good Vibrations is composed by Brian Wilson with lyrics by Mike Love. Released on October 10, 1966, just five months after their revolutionary opus, Pet Sounds, the single was an immediate critical and commercial hit, topping record charts in several countries including the U.S. and the U.K., Good Vibrations later became widely acclaimed as one of the finest and most important works of the rock era. Over 90 hours of tape was consumed during the dozen-plus sessions across four different studios. This process was reflected in the song's several dramatic shifts in key, texture, instrumentation, and mood. Good Vibrations was the costliest single ever recorded at the time of its release. Here's the story of Good Vibrations, beginning with music journalist and, as a side note, the man credited with giving Jimi Hendrix the idea of setting fire to his guitar, Keith Altham. 
Good Vibrations was just the, the, the perfect encapsulation of what he was doing with pet sounds, I suppose. It was a mixture of all those sounds and things that he had accumulated for pet sounds and put into a condensed version for a single. Here's Beach Boy, Bruce Johnston. I think if Good Vibrations had been on pet sounds, uh, we would probably own the galaxy by now. You know, I mean, what do you do after Good Vibrations? If the, and if, especially it's on that, if it's on that album, but uh, it didn't work out that way. Here's Brian Wilson. I managed to get Pet Sounds with Tony, and then I said to Tony, "I'm going to write a song all about Good Vibrations." My mother told me when I was a kid that dogs pick up vibrations from people, and if they feel threatened, they bark. Yeah, I'm picking up good vibrations. Mike, Mike came up. I said, "This song's called Good Vibrations," and he goes, "I'm picking up good vibrations." He wrote that bass line. Here's Mike Love. Good vibrations was done in sections at different studios. It took me six weeks for to get, have it produced. Here's recording engineers Bruce Botnick and Mark Linnet. This is definitely Gold Star. Uh, when it because when it makes the cut. I, I can definitely hear the sound of Sunset Sound on the drums. It's much drier, not as roomy. One, two, three, four. In this part, the, the cellos on the theremin are overdubbed. And Brian also pulled out a large portion of the, of the three track. There's a piano in there that that he pulled out as much as he could, and again mixed it down to mono. And and this is the same verse from Gold Star. Did he repeat the verse? Yeah, I believe and so. made a copy. Yeah, and the choruses are definitely repeated. Yeah. And here's the piano. And a juice harp. That was an overdub. And finally, there was a composite of, uh, that became the actual track to Good Vibrations. And he gave it to me in the form of an acetate, which I was able to play. And uh, I actually dictated the uh, lyrics to Good Vibrations uh, on the way to the studio to my then wife, Suzanne. And uh, I. I wrote this poem, I love the colorful clothes she wears and the way the sunlight plays upon her hair, that kind of thing. And I came up with, I'm picking up good vibrations, she's giving me the excitations, to, to paraphrase the, the bass part, which is... So it was, I came up with the words and that hook, and Brian did the brilliant track, so it was a true collaboration. Here's a r executive at Capitol Records, Carl Ingeman. Good Vibration was a record that took him a long time to make in between uh, different albums and things like that. And to me, Good Vibrations is perhaps the greatest rock and roll record of all time. Well, the, the night we cut Good Vibrations, the, the guys had a really lot of fun, you know. They really liked it. They said, Brian, this is going to be a number one record. I, I love the colorful clothes Let's take a walk through this number one hit. The first verse is built around an ethereal descending chord progression in E flat minor. I hear the sound of a gentle 
on the wind that lifts a perfume through the air. And then we hit the first chorus. I'm picking up the chorus starts in G flat major, and then with each repetition, the chorus climbs upward, providing a counterpoint to the verse's descending chord progression. Then, we go back to the verse. Check out the bass line. Listen to how high it is. Softly smile, I know she must be kind. Instead of just playing the root of the main chord in the song, the bass is actually creating a counter melody. At the time, hardly anyone was using bass lines in this way. After this verse, we return to the chorus, carried by a new instrument called an electrotheremin that inhabited the good vibrations and the Beach Boys' patented harmony. Then we hit the first of two interludes, or episodic digressions. This section is greeted with a sudden tape splice, which is a clear edit between two sessions that were recorded at different times in the studios. This part of the song might normally be called a bridge, but instead of cutting back to the chorus like a bridge might, we cut into the second part of the episodic digression. This tape splice is even more dramatic than the first. Gotta keep those loving good vibrations a happening with her. Gotta keep those loving good vibrations a happening with her. Gotta keep those loving good vibrations. Just as we're floating through the air, a five-part harmony wakes us back up as we punch into the chorus. This chorus starts in the reverse direction, beginning in B-flat and working down back to where we started out in G-flat. series of harmonies, juddering cellos, and the electrotheremin carry us out. Good Vibrations was dubbed a pocket symphony, and its production elements and symphonic structures would be echoed in dozens of songs in the decades to come. So, whenever you're talking about the greats in rock, be sure to give Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys a little love. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And for anyone who thinks the Beach Boys were lightweights, well, think again after hearing that story. And by the way, listening to our story on multi-track recordings and the battle between the Beatles and the Beach Boys for production ascendance. And my goodness, it was the Beach Boys who affected the Beatles. 
and not the other way around. And by the way, to hear our stories of a song, go to ouramericannetwork.org. There you will find the story of George on my mind. Light my fire by the doors. Jesus, take the wheel. There goes my life. Why me, my Lord, by Chris Christopherson, and so many others. Combining always the arts of storytelling and music here on Our American Stories, the story of a song. This is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything. And periodically, we tell stories about sports. But as you've come to know, they're not just sports stories, any more than those great stories on ESPN, those 30 for 30 stories, or sports stories. We're going to spend an hour talking about Coach Dean Smith of the University of North Carolina. He passed in 2015, but we are here to remind people of the virtues of this man and stories about this man. If you aren't a coach, you'll still want to listen. If you run a business, if you run a family, if you have any influence at all in your life with other people, you're going to want to learn from the very best about how to lead. And that's what Dean Smith was. He was a leader, he was a teacher, and of course, he was a coach. His basketball bloodlines ran as deep as the Carolina blue sky. His coach at the University of Kansas, Fog Allen, learned the game from the man who invented it and after whom basketball's Hall of Fame is named, James Naismith. Winning was also in Dean Smith's bloodline. Under Coach Allen, he was a backup guard on the Kansas team that won the 1952 NCAA title, and he was runner-up the following year. He scored only one point in those two championship games, but it was from the bench sitting near his coach that a sports giant was birthed. He would go on to mentor two of the next generation's great coaches, fellow Hall of Famers Larry Brown and Roy Williams. Great coaching apples, it turns out. Don't fall far from great coaching trees. Dean Smith was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1931. His dad was a teacher and a high school basketball coach. His mom was a teacher too, but it was from his dad that he learned the value of every human being and their potential. Kansas was a highly segregated state at the time, but that didn't stop his dad from putting a black player, Paul Terry, on his team. In the 1933-34 state tournament, Terry was banned from playing by state officials. Rather than hamper that team's performance, it spurred them on. They ended up winning the state title. When Smith was 15, his family moved to Topeka, where he played basketball, football, and baseball in high school and earned an academic scholarship to the University of Kansas. He would go on to coach briefly at Kansas and at the Air Force. And then came the big shot at North Carolina, He was replacing the legendary Frank McGuire, who had led a team to a 32-0 season and an NCAA championship not long before. Things didn't go very well the first year. Here's one of his players on one of the early teams, legendary NBA player and great college player, Billy Cunningham. To say it was difficult times for him is an understatement. He was being hung in effigy. Uh, 
the coaches, everyone was questioning his coaching ability, what he was doing, alumni, students, wasn't very many good things. Matter of fact, I found something from the old Daily Tar Heel, January 13, 1965, and I just took a little portion of it out. It's a quote, yeah, I know Dean has a big job to do, and if he can't keep up with the traditions of the fine Carolina teams, he should start looking for, a smaller, for smaller shoes to fill. And the bottom says, name withheld. I hope he's here tonight. <laughs> and those were tough years for Coach. And Billy Cunningham continues on Dean Smith's early years. You know, they say you learn more from losing than winning. Well, we made sure he got enough of that. And, and uh, one of the things, though, we taught him is humility, number one. How could you be a cocky, wise guy coaching teams that were 8 and 9, 12 and 12, you know, didn't make it through the ACC tournament, didn't do it, really didn't do very much of anything. So humility, we got that covered for him. <laughs> Loyalty. It was only the players in his immediate family that would talk to him. I mean, no one had anything to do with Coach Smith. They were, all they wanted to do was get someone new in. You know, coaching and recruiting, which it come down to, and you saw that there, is that he learned that either he changed the style and started coaching in the proper way and went out and got some decent players because he surely was tired of watching us. And then that's when things started, and obviously he went on to become, if not the greatest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And by the way, Billy Cunningham was speaking before he sold out Dean Smith Center at the University of North Carolina. This was just days after he died. All the players came back, all the people who knew him, and all the kids. The place was just packed. And we're bringing you parts of these speeches to celebrate this great man's life. Up next was retired president of Converse Sneakers, Mickey Bell, who happened to be graduating, who happened to be a graduate of the class in 1975, and who said Dean would have hated all of this attention. As I look out over this huge crowd, I can't help but think how Coach Smith would absolutely hate this. As you know, he did not like to be center of attention. He did not want to um, um, be in the spotlight. He was a very humble man, and he would never accept or really understand why people came from all over the country and all over the state to be here to honor him. Yet if anybody deserved a celebration, it was Coach Smith. And Mickey Bell then asked the question rhetorically to the crowd, why me? Why am I speaking? When Coach Williams called me last week he and asked, said that he and the family wanted me to speak, I had the same thought that you did when you saw the list of speakers today. Why Mickey Bell? <laughs> For you see, I was not an All-American. I didn't play in the NBA. My jersey is up there, my number, up in the rafters, but some guy named O'Corn came up and put his name on it. <laughs> Besides, when you look at the other speakers here today, they're all legends. Antoine Jameson, Phil Ford, Eric Montrose. I said, Coach, didn't you want another star to speak here today? And Roy reminded me that Coach Smith gave you equal treatment to every player, from a walk-on to a superstar. 
Yes, said, yes Roy said, all the speakers achieved great basketball uh, uh, accomplishments. But everyone thought it would be great to have someone on the other end of the spectrum to make a presentation. <laughs> so I said to Roy, let me get this straight. What you really are saying, you want a player to speak that had limited talent, limited scoring ability, was slow, couldn't really jump, played a little, and contributed some. Is that right? And Roy said, yes. And I said, well, I'm your man. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Mickey Bell, from Phil Ford, from so many of his great players, and the aforementioned Roy Williams, you're hearing his name a lot. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life of Dean Smith here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the life of Dean Smith. We're celebrating his life, and we're hearing from so many of the people who knew him, from great players to not-so-great players, as you're about to hear from Mickey Bell, who continues to talk about all the debts of gratitude he owed this great coach. Besides, how could I say no? Coach Smith never said no to any of requests I ever made from him. Well, I, I take that back. When I was a senior... I went up to Coach Smith and I said, Coach, when we go in the four corners, do you think I should be the one in the middle of the four corners handling the ball instead of Phil Ford? <laughs> and I remember his answer. He just said, no. <laughs> like you over last week, I have been reading and listening to all the tributes to Coach Smith. They've made me smile. They've made me reflect. And yes, that made me cry. But I'm so pleased that through these tributes, Coach Smith is now understood by everyone around the world of how great he was. Over the years, my friends who never met Coach sometimes would come up to me and say, Mickey, was he that good? What was so special about him? And that really is an impossible thing to answer completely. For how do I explain that yes, he was a great coach, but he was even a better person. How do I explain to someone that life, his life was guided by principles and he never ever wavered from them? Yes, we all have things we believe in, but how many of you can say that you never waver from them? How do you explain to someone how he made all that played for him a man? Someone who challenged us every day to get better on the court and off the court. He coached you to be a better basketball player for four years. He coached you to be a man for a lifetime. How do I explain to someone all the life lessons he taught us while we were here? Lessons like the power of his positive words. He was the most positive man I ever met. He was always encouraging you. Now, he could get mad, uh, I think all the players here knew that when that whistle blew hard, he clapped his hands together and said, get on the line, we'll get something accomplished today. We were in trouble. But he was all, always positive. It was always when we make the free throw, not if we make the free throw. When we steal the ball versus if we steal the ball. 
the glass to Coach Smith was always half full. How do I explain to someone that everything he did was with dignity and class? He never talked about winning, only improving. He never embarrassed a player. He was both a humbled winner and a gracious loser. He never uttered a single cuss word while I was at Carolina. And believe me, my play deserved a couple of cuss words. <laughs> How do I explain to someone the lesson of loyalty? You saw that every year during senior day. No matter the opponent, no matter how highly ranked they were, or no matter how important the game was, the seniors were going to start. His principle of loyalty far exceeded his goal of winning. How do I explain to someone the lesson that little things do matter? Did you fully touch the line in sprints? Did you help your teammate up once he dove on the floor? Are you on time? I look at every player right here that played for him. They're all nodding their heads because we knew that on time the Coach Smith meant five minutes early. And his lesson there was that there was no shortcuts in the game, just like there's no shortcuts in life. He always said little things equate to huge success. How do I explain the lessons of preparation leads to calmness? Duke game down eight, 17 seconds. All these stories you've heard were true. I was in the huddle. I'm leaning over his left shoulder. He says, we're in great shape. <laughs> we got him right where we want him. <laughs> Isn't this fun? Because you see, we had prepared or practiced so much for late game situations. He was totally calm and positive. His calmness against adversity is something I try to do even today. How do I explain the life lessons that family and friends are the most important? There's a special bond among all the Carolina basketball family. We might be generations apart, yet we know we were part of something very special, and we have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Other, sc other schools have tried to emulate what Coach Smith created, but there is only one Carolina. When my son was born, I received a handwritten note congratulating me on the birth of my son, Michael. Now, I'd been out of school for many, many years. I didn't call him. I didn't tell him the name of my son. Yet he took the time out to write me a note congratulating me on his birth. And when I marveled at this later when I saw him, his response was, Mickey, that's what friends do. Wow. It is well documented how Coach Smith's innovations impacted the game of basketball. The four corners, secondary break, have all been adopted by coaches both here and abroad. One of his innovations transcended basketball. It's now seen in all team sports. That, that innovation is pointing at your teammate after a great play. You saw it on a key play in the recent Super Bowl. Tom Brady throws a pass to the receiver, the receiver jumps up, points back at Brady, and Brady points back at him. It was Coach Smith's way of thanking the player that had just made the pass. Because to Coach Smith, it was all about team and teammate. Just think, that simple gesture epitomized what Coach Smith was all about. If he was here today, as Billy said, he would really not like this uh, praise on him. 
He would be up here pointing at people. He would say, thank you, players. He would say, thank you, Coach Guthridge. He would say, thank you, students. He would say, thank you, Roy Williams. And I think all of us should thank Roy Williams for keeping the values that Coach Smith created ongoing here in Chapel Hill. And that point to a pastor was the biggest deal. No one had ever seen it before. Guys pointing at each other and giving each other credit immediately and spontaneously on a court. People copied the North Carolina way, but it was the North Carolina way. Mickey Bell went on to thank his coach in these final words. For 40 years, every time I saw a coach, he would always say, thank you. And I'm not sure what he thought me, was thanking me for, but today I want to thank him. I want to thank him for giving a guy with limited t- talent, remember the guy that couldn't jump, couldn't shoot, couldn't run, a chance to be part of the basketball family. Thank you, coach. Thank you. And in closing, if your friends, if your friends come up to you, if your children, or even if your grandchildren come up and ever ask you, what was Coach Smith like? Simply reply, he was the best. Thank you. And then came up Phil Ford, one of the greatest point guards in college history, ended up coaching at North Carolina, and he started things off with a funny story. It must have been my second or third game, my first year as an assistant coach here back on the staff. And the first two games, I didn't say anything. You know, I was really nervous. I was in awe, you know. But this particular game, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach this game. I'm going to help out. So, you know, J.R. was playing. And we'd come down court. We'd change sides of the court with the ball like we were taught to do, make three or four passes, throw it into J.R. J.R. would kick it out. He'd get a little deeper. We'd kick it back into him. He'd miss a one-foot jump hook. The other team would come down the court, make one pass, guy shoot a three-point shot, and we got a hand in the face, and it went in. So this happened three or four times down the court, and I said, I'm going to coach a little bit right now. I say, hey, coach, you think we ought to call a timeout? He looks at me with a straight face and says, what are we going to tell him? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're getting the shots we want to get. They're taking the shots we want them to take. That was my first lesson in coaching right there, I'm telling you. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of these talks. And wait till you hear Roy Williams. It's just worth, it's, it's worth the wait, folks. And by the way, Phil Ford, when he was recruited by Dean Smith, said this in an article right after his death. My mom when she first met him, thought he was the dean of the school. That's the way Mr. Smith carried himself, like the dean of an academic program, and that more than 95% of his players graduated is a record that would make any college dean proud. When we come back, more on the life of Coach Dean Smith, his story, his players' stories, North Carolina's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Coach Dean Smith. And you're going to be hearing more from Phil Ford, other players, and of course, Coach Roy Williams. What a speech he gives. It's worth the wait. And all of this happened at the Dean Dome, as it's affectionately called, on the bucolic, beautiful campus at the University of North Carolina, where Coach Smith taught young men how to be grown men for decades. Phil Ford, by the way, before we go to another clip and his talk, he said this about Coach Smith. He was about the only coach who told me I was not going to start. But my mom sat me down and explained to me that when I was a senior, I could then be assured that Coach Smith wouldn't be promising another high school All-America my starting spot when he was a freshman. And I would never have thought about it that way. Right there and then, Coach Smith was teaching me how to be a man and how to think like one. Back to Phil Ford's speech, and he starts to get emotional right about here. Because of my Christian belief, I I do believe that Coach is in a better place right now, uh, especially seeing how he was the last couple years. But the human side of me, you know, I still want to go by his office. I would go by his home with Mrs. Smith and and his office with Brent and Miss Wood, and they would make him smile. And, you know, I I still want to have lunch with him, and I still want to push him out to his van. But uh, I do know one day that I'll see him, and I'm really going to miss him. And if there's a model of how we should live our lives, I mean, we need no, look no further than coach's life because I'm honored, I'm truly honored to have been, to have played for and been an assistant coach to the greatest coach ever. Not basketball, the greatest coach. I'm going to miss you, coach. And next up, and by the way, you're seeing every race and ethnicity, every speech style, every religious type. Up comes this gigantic, tall, skinny, white kid, seven feet tall, outstanding UNC player, Eric Montross. And these are the words that came to his mind about coach. Humility. Conviction. Dedication. Compassion. Loyalty. Bravery and love are a few words which I now know describe Coach Smith. But in 1988, I knew Coach Smith only as a winning coach. When my high school basketball coach said to me, would you be interested in hearing from the University of North Carolina and Dean Smith, my answer was yes. Later that summer, I pulled my truck to a stop in front of the open doors of our gymnasium, and one of my teammates ran out of the gym into the parking lot, and he said, you'll never believe who's here to watch you play in a pickup game. It's Dean Smith, and he's sitting in a rickety old plastic chair in the back corner. You see, even in Indiana, a state with their own legendary coach and Bob Knight, Coach Smith evoked emotion and respect. My father remembers early in my recruitment wanting to learn more about Coach Smith, so he and I began to read the book, The Carolina Corporation. It was then that we began to see a sketch 
of what would later become a deep understanding of Carolina basketball under head coach Dean Smith. In the fall of 1992, I sat with my Tar Heel teammates, many of whom are here today, in the locker room just back here. And we were setting goals for the upcoming season. We came to an agreement at the end of that meeting that our goal would be to end the season in New Orleans. The next day in our locker, and you guys remember this, was an 8 by 10 picture taped in the corner of our mirrors, where it stayed all season long. The image in that picture was of the scoreboard inside the New Orleans Superdome. And it said, the University of North Carolina, 1993 national champions. The famed poet Robert Frost said, the afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Upon Coach Smith's passing, ESPN's Marty Smith used that quote to describe Coach Smith as the afternoon. And so many others, including his opposing coaches, the morning. Coach Smith has had a profound effect on our lives. For many of us and for many of you, the first thing we think of is a magical comeback, a championship, or a victory over a rival. But more impressive than those on-court achievements is the indelible mark he has left upon society. As a respected leader in the community, he stood tall for what he knew was right and garnered respect because of it. He's long been lauded for his efforts, but was shy to receive this attention, because to him, it seemed like the only morally correct stance to take. And however great his passion was towards the game that he loved, it was displayed tenfold to us as his players. He brought the fight for desegregation to college sports and used the game of basketball as a vehicle to carry the message, a faith-based message of humanity, onto a national stage. Coach Smith delivered this message publicly, but his message was not for show. He administered it to us as players as well. He mandated that unless he had a letter from our parents excusing us, that we be in a place of worship once a week. He encouraged us to find something we were passionate about outside of the game of basketball and to share the same dedication we had for our sport with that cause. There was a recognition that basketball was not what should wholly define our lives. And for many of us, that way of thinking has been embraced. Dr. Martin Luther King said, Junior said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Among many of the off-court experiences designed to give us a broader sense of appreciation for the opportunities we had, was a trip to Butner Prison, where we practiced in front of some of the most forgotten individuals in our society. 
Numerous trips to children's hospitals also brought us face to face with the very spirit that made our sport so popular and increased our awareness that the world was not made up entirely of individuals as fortunate as we were. A familiar thought for the day used by Coach Smith is the serenity prayer from theologian and fellow Medal of Freedom winner Reinhold Niebuhr. It reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Leaders are unique in how they convey their beliefs. Coach Smith, he led with courage and wisdom and by example, giving all of us the opportunity to focus the lens through which we looked at life. You're not going to hear many NBA and college athletes sound like that, folks, and that's coming straight from a father figure and coach named Dean Smith. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Coach Roy Williams. And by the way, Smith won the Medal of Freedom in 2013, and not many coaches win that kind of an award. The man who brought up so many young men and turned them into men, the legend, the coach, the man, Dean Smith's story, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, the final segment in this hour-long celebration of one of the great men, one of the great coaches, one of the great teachers in American life. And we love to celebrate teachers, and the best coaches are just that. Listen to our Bear Bryant Hour, our Vince Lombardi Hour. They're startling. And what you can learn as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a school leader, as a church leader, well, it's all there, folks. Listen to the way these young men talk. 30, 40 years after playing for them, it's as if it was yesterday. And they still maintain relationships. By the way, Michael Jordan said this, Other than my parents, no one had a bigger influence on my life than him. He was more than a coach. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my second father. And by the way, this man racked up 879 wins, a 776 winning percentage, 17 ACC championships. And boy, that's tough. That is the tough basketball conference. And of course, two national championships. But here's why he's really remembered. It ain't the wins, folks. And now, the man who played as a JV player for Coach Smith went to Kansas, then came back to North Carolina, current coach Roy Williams. If you ever hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Dean said this, you know it's a lie. Because <laughs> I've never referred to him anything other than Coach Smith. If you hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Bill Guthridge, that Bill did this, that's a lie too because he's always been Coach Guthridge. And Coach Smith used to say, he'd call and he'd say, Coach Williams, Dean Smith. I said, Coach, how you doing? <laughs> right. 
we're partners playing some good golf matches, and I'd always call him coach, and he'd say, you can call me Dean. I said, no, sir, I can't, and I never have. No, sir, I can't. Here's Roy Williams talking about something that startled him as a young player, and it had to do with where Coach Smith took his players to practice. I even dreamed of Coach Smith last night. Gospel truth. I hope I never hit another golf ball if that's a lie. So Coach knows I'm telling the truth. But some of the things about Coach Smith and one thing I thought of when it was said something about Coach taking him to Butner and practicing. It's one of the times I disagreed with Coach Smith. He took one of the teams when I was here to the state prison, maximum security prison. Everybody there had at least two life sentences. And they closed that door, that gate, and it is a scary feeling. And we're in there and we're doing a little clinic and everybody's having a good time. And Coach says, well, let's scrimmage those guys. Okay. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, Coach, you referee. Now, there's some players here that remember that. I said, Coach, you think I'm calling a foul on one of those guys? You are crazy. <laughs> and that was the truth. I didn't call a single foul. And not a lot of coaches are taking their boys to prisons to scrimmage, folks. Dean was always teaching. Roy Williams says here, with Dean Smith, with Coach Smith, the players were always first. The other thing I remembered last night about Coach Smith is he always wanted to make sure that you guys knew you were first, more important than anybody else. And I've tried to do that for 27 years as a head coach. One day, I was talking to a player, and I have a rule when a player's in the office, nobody interrupts. And if somebody calls, I don't take the call. And Jennifer Holbrook, who's sitting over here, was my secretary at that time. I've got a player in the office, and she opened the door and stuck her head in, and I looked, and I said, what? Because you just don't do that. And she said, former President Bush is on the phone. <laughs> I said, would you please tell him we'll call him back? True story. So when the player and myself, when we were finished and the player left, I walked out and I said, was that really President Bush or somebody like Mickey Bell? You know. <laughs> and she said, no, the Secret Service called first. And I said, we'll see if you can get him on the line. And so she got him on the line and I talked to him and he wanted to see if he could get two tickets to the next game. Swear to goodness. So two or three years ago, the Final Four was in Houston, and they honored President Bush. And Jimmy Nance was the MC, and Jimmy got up and told that story about Coach Roy Williams wouldn't even take his call. <laughs> and President Bush got up and said, the conversation I had with Coach Williams was fantastic because he said his players were more important than anybody. And that came from Coach Smith. And here's Roy Williams talking about the encouraging ethos that Smith drove 
at North Carolina. I would like to encourage all of you to tell people what they mean to you. At the private service with the family and the letterman, I told them a story that I had never told Cook Smith that I loved him. And I've regretted that. And I've told my players, encourage them to tell people that mean really mean something to you, tell them how much they mean to you. Coach Smith knew what he meant to me. I tried to give him a great deal of credit because I told the truth. Everything that I did, I got from him. Now, yesterday, I didn't guard the four corners quite as well as he would have wanted me to. And I look out, and I think Coach Larry Brown, who was one of the first guys to run the four corners, up here is Phil Ford, the best ever, Kenny Smith, Dick Grubar. I tried to give him credit every time I did anything, but I never really told him what he meant. So my players are sitting back there at the back, and they know this is the truth. We should all spend time telling people what they truly mean to us. I had a coach one time that said, if you coach a guy 30 years later, and I'm from the South, so a guy means go boy or girly the one, so it makes no difference. But if you coach someone that 30 years later, you can still see something that you gave him and to really make sure it's something positive. Every day our lives will show something that Coach Smith gave us. The way we treat people, the way we treat people with respect and dignity, and the way we care, because that's what Coach Smith did. And here's Roy Williams closing things out. We're very fortunate to be here together in a wonderful, wonderful family. The Smith family, I thank you. We love you. I'm trying to speak on behalf of every one of us. Everybody has negatives. Everybody has pluses. Coach Smith had more pluses than anybody I've ever known. Let's raise our hand and point and thank him for the assist. Thank you. And again, we're at the Dean Dome. We're taking you there. And this was last year, but we'll play this every year because great teaching is great teaching and it's eternal. These themes last forever. Up last, to close out the ceremonies, Dean Smith's pastor, who he was very close to, and that's Reverend Robert Seymour. And he closed out everything with these words. What a wonderful tribute to have this huge crowd here today to honor his memory. But Dean was an extraordinarily humble man. He was known for his humility and giving other people the thanks and attention. And if he could have anticipated this gathering today, I think there's a good chance he might have said, don't do it. 
But this gathering was not for Dean. This gathering was for us. And it's so true. And by the way, the Reverend then went on to read a little poem that was absolutely beautiful. And I wanted to share one last story that I know about Dean Smith. And it came from a conversation I'd had with a friend. It turns out a country club had been courting Coach Smith. And Coach Smith was very close to John Thompson, who happened to be black. This was in the 1980s. And Dean Smith had a question for that country club. Can I bring Coach Thompson? And they said, well, no. African-Americans aren't allowed to play at this club. And they go, so then with all due respect, I ain't about to join. And he said, and that was the nature and character of Dean Smith. And this was the premier club where all the connected folks were, all the donors were. And he was teaching then. Not too long after that club desegregated, his word got out that Dean wasn't going to play there. Always leading, always teaching, trying always to do the right thing. Not a perfect man, no one is. But my goodness, Dean Smith's life, celebrated at the Dean Dome, we'll do it every year here. His story, all of his boys' story, in a sense, Chapel Hill's story while he was there, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.